The following content is provided to you as a ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a high-adventure Christian wilderness camp in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exist to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of Scripture and personal relationships in order to equip the church to impact this generation. For more information, visit our website at swoutfitters.com or follow us on Twitter using the handle at SnowbirdSwo. Enjoy the message. Hey! Um, okay, so 745 is an early time to be talking about heavy things, but we're going to jump right into it. We're going to be talking about errors to avoid in preaching. Um, and the first off, I want to encourage you, well, this, is like one of the, this is one of the most important things that we can do, right? We are talking um, to God's people, giving God's word to God's people, and we want to make sure that, uh, that we're doing this well. Hey, you guys can keep getting coffee and donuts the whole time, and I won't get offended. Um, Unless you yell cuss words at me, which happens sometimes. If, if, they, if we run out of coffee, then everyone's offended. Um, but anyway, um, so this is a, <clears throat> what, a great, what a great privilege, but what a great responsibility, right? And uh, um, the, the truth of the matter is, is as we grow in interpreting the Bible and teaching the Bible, we realize, unfortunately, that we've made lots of mistakes in the past. And I know for me, um, I, uh, I, the first time that I had, was like kind of put in a role of teaching was after my freshman year of college, um, the student pastor that was at our church left and they're like, well, this guy, he's been in Bible school for a year. He should be the youth pastor. And, uh, yeah, it was, and I was like, sure, no problem. And, uh, I had, I went to this little tiny school. I mean, really tiny. The name of, it was Temple Baptist College in Cincinnati and um, if you went in the front entrance, it said Temple Baptist Church and College. And if you went in the back entrance, it said Temple Baptist Church and a bookstore. So if you went in the back entrance, you didn't even know there was a college there. But um, I just started taking a bunch of Bible classes because it was fun. And I started taking Greek. It's the first time I realized that the uh, New Testament wasn't written in English. In fact, I grew up in a pretty like independent, fundamental Baptist church. So this is the first time I knew that the Bible was written in anything other than like 15th century English. So uh, it blew me away and I thought, well, you know, so I started teaching through the book of Romans and I really would just pick a word to teach on every night. And I realized this is probably, I mean, now I realize that's not wise, right? Why would you just pick this one word to talk about? Um, But I also had a lot to outgrow because the pastor of our church, again, you know, independent fundamental Baptist church, um, the, the pastor of our church wasn't the best at handling scripture. And, uh, and I think a lot of it, in my mind, a lot of it is tied to, which don't get me wrong, I love the King James Version Bible. There's so much of the King James Version Bible that's stuck in my brain, and I love it. It's weird because I'll start quoting scripture sometimes, and I'll throw in a ye and a half, and I think that's kind of interesting. I don't use those words, but, um, but it's also not laid out help in a healthy way. Like, it, originally, like when we had the King James Version, it was just verse, 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 verse. You didn't have any clue what context was like. You didn't know about paragraphs or like the flow of any type of argument. You just thought, well. And so then my pastor, he would preach and he would pick one verse and he would stand up. He would read a verse out of the Bible and then he'd put his Bible aside and he'd start preaching. And the, the good thing was he'd been studying the Bible for 30 years as an adult. And so when he was preaching, he was preaching true things. And it was good truth. I mean, like the Holy Spirit, you know, helped like fence in his words so that he was saying true things. But it was never from that passage of Scripture, right? And so 
I mean, just, and so what we want to do is we want to make sure that when we're teaching and preaching that we're explaining what God wants to say to his people. And to even think, think about it that way is just a, it's a heavy calling, right? Even if you're leading a Bible study, right? You're explaining to God's people, thus saith the Lord, right? What God said. So we want to get better in this and then, um, and just to be encouraging on the front end, because some of the stuff I'm going to say is discouraging because of just errors that we find ourselves doing that you might think, oh, cool, I just, I use, that's what I've been doing, just like that. So to encourage you, I hear, I've got three quotes on preaching that are just for fun. Uh, Martin Luther said, I preach as though Christ was crucified yesterday, rose from the dead today, and is coming back tomorrow, which is cool. Um, Richard Baxter says, if we can but teach Christ to our people, we teach them all. And John Owen said, a man only preaches a sermon well to others if he has first preached it to himself. If he does not thrive on the food he prepares, he will not be skilled at making it appetizing for others. If the word does not dwell in power in us, it will not pass in power from us. All right? So it's good, right? Yeah. See? You guys encouraged? Remember that encouragement. Okay, so um, we're going to talk about two different types of errors in preaching, two different categories. One, um, errors in preparation, you know, in studying and preparing, and then errors in execution, like when you have to kill people. Um, see what I did there? It's a... It's a joke, and 7.52, why not say jokes? Um, it, it doesn't matter if other people think they're funny. Um, it's, we're not actually killing people. Um, the word execute can have a couple different meanings, um, which is actually important because the first thing we're going to talk about is errors in preparation. We're going to talk about word studies. Um, like I said, I used word studies poorly um, as, a, as a young man trying to teach because I was just like, Wow. Greek, this is awesome. I'm going to throw Greek out there, and that's going to, that's going to, that's a trump, that's a, a trump card, right? You throw in a Greek word, and you can't argue with that. I don't know, but he said a Greek word, so that's cool. Um, and so we, and, and I want us to be real helpful, and I'm, I'll say this, I do think that um, studying the original languages of scripture is super helpful. I think that uh, for some reason, God, in, in his providence, recorded the Old Testament in Hebrew, which is a different language, and the New Testament in Greek. There's a reason he did that. And I think that the more that we can study those languages, the better understanding we're going to get personally in Scripture. And I think the main reason, for me personally, the main reason why I think it's good to study the original languages is it makes you slow down. You have to stop and think about every word and how every word is used in a sentence and how it relates to each other. And just so, you know, you're just taking the time to concentrate on everything that God's saying. However, there's some problems that we come into when we start doing word studies. Like, for instance, there's this one. Oh, and a lot of the stuff that, um, uh, some, especially the, this, uh, the stuff on word studies, um, D.A. Carson has a helpful and very discouraging book called Exegetical Fallacies. Um, if you want to get discouraged and think that you've never understood the Bible ever, and uh, th you should read it. Um, <coughs> but he's talking about word studies, right? So with, with a root fallacy, this is the, the presupposition that the meaning of a word is bound up in its shape, components, or etymology, right? That we say, oh, well, this word is these two words combined to each other, so it means this. Well, not necessarily, right? In English, we don't think that. Like when we think of the word butterfly, right? Do you think, well, it's obviously, he's obviously talking about a combination of a normal fly, house fly, and butter. Or it tastes like butter. Or it loves pancakes. You know, I don't know. Um, 
And so we, we, don't, we need to make sure we don't get locked into that, right? Because, like, there's this one word, and there's uh, just random Greek words I'm going to throw in there just for fun. Uh, Monogenes, um, we, it, a lot of times it's translated only begotten, and it could be only begotten because technically it has mono, right, only, and genos, that has to do with Genesis, right, only begotten, only, but it, it doesn't have to mean that. It could mean, and it's within its semantic range, it could mean the only one of its kind. And, it's, and we need to make sure that we don't say, oh, this word's always used like this, right? Because if we're talking about Jesus being this, the only son of God, yeah, great, you can do that. But if you talk about um, Isaac from Hebrews 11, where it says that Isaac was the monogenes of, uh, of Abraham, well, that can't be right because he had Ishmael before Isaac, and then he had these, whatever, five or six other sons with Keturah. So then, the New Te- then Hebrews would be saying something not true about Isaac, right? So just, we got to be careful. Um, in context, context is key for everything, right? On um, the next, and pay no attention to these big words, uh, semantic anachronism. Semantic just means meaning, anachro- uh, meaning, anachronism means something that's out of place in time, right? So we need to be careful that we, if we, we don't impose a later definition of a word onto an earlier context. Does that make sense? So because words change. In fact, Spencer and I have a constant conversation about how language, that, okay, the truth of the matter is, is that use determines meaning in language. You, get, you know what I'm saying? If people, if everybody is using a word in one way, then the meaning of that word, no matter what it meant originally, it changes. And we, we, we just have to, we need to know that that's not just something that happens in English, but it's happened in every other language. And languages are just languages, right? They're, they're just words that are conveying meaning. So um, Spencer read an article, he was telling me about it yes, uh, yesterday, about the word literally. Because the word literally has now changed its definition. Because literally no longer means literally. In fact, literally usually means anything but literally. You know, like, man, someone will say, man, that literally blew my mind. What? Your mind was literally blown up? Well, no, that's, that's not what they meant. In fact, what they mean was figuratively or seriously. I mean, they just, or pay attention to what I'm saying, you know, is really what we're doing. So we need to understand that, like, we can't, so especially in Scripture, because we're dealing with the language that's, you know, thousands of years old. We don't need to take a later definition and import it to an earlier thing. Like um, we get uh, in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, uh, when it says God loves a cheerful giver, you've got the word hilaron, which we get the Greek word hilarious, I mean the English word hilarious from. And we need to, Paul's not saying that you need to be an hilarious giver. Like every time the offering goes by, (laughs) oh man, take this money, yeah, right? You know, that's not what it just means cheerful, right? And then the one of the a word that for me was the worst because I've made this mistake, like when I was teaching through Romans chapter one, and I came across one sixteen that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And that word power, do you know what that is? Dunamis. Do you know what word we get from that? Dynamite. You know the gospel. This is the gospel dynamite. Paul's saying that the gospel is dynamite, is God's dynamite. No, he's not, right? First off, dynamite didn't exist. (laughs) Secondly, do we really want to say the gospel is dynamite? Let's time out for a second. Powerful? Yeah. 
destructive, killing people. I mean, I just don't, I don't think it's a good parallel, right? And let's not make Paul say that the gospel is dynamite, right? So we've got to pay attention to that. Um, the next is kind of the opposite, semantic obsolescence, right? When you take an obsolete meaning, an earlier definition, and apply it to a later meaning. Does that make sense? See what I'm saying? So like, and we see this happen in English. Like at the, uh, look here at the, at the last, the second example, prevent used to mean to go before, but now it means to preclude, stop, or hinder. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, when it says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Well, in Originally in context, it meant precede, which is why in more modern translations it say precede or go before. Uh, b- prevent, just in our later understanding, it means stop, hold up, right? So, at the same thing, we have, uh, we have examples of Greek. Um, we won't go into it. With, uh, well, I guess we will. We're doing it right now. Um, uh, kephale, it could mean head. The, an older definition was to mean, uh, I mean, an older definition mean was source. The common definition in the New Testament time period was head. And so when it's talking about Christ being the head of the, uh, Christ being the head of the husband and the husband being the head of the, the household, right? It doesn't mean source. It means head. So the, we've, if we try to say source, it gets confusing. It just mud, it muddies the water too much. So we just need to understand the context, right? The next is false assumptions about technical meaning. We, hear, we see this happen all the time. And the truth of the matter is, is that sometimes some words can have a technical meaning. You know, sometimes you might say something like, oh, well, this is a, a military term, or this is an athletic term, or this is a nautical term, but it doesn't necessarily have to import that context at that time, right? And, or if we look at uh, the two, uh, two definitions here, one, sanctification, it could mean the process by which um, uh, we're growing as believers. It doesn't technically just have to mean the setting apart, right? Technically, it means setting apart. But it doesn't always have to mean that way. And then in uh, Matthew 28, the word ta ethne uh, means it usually, the technical meaning of ta ethne in the New Testament is the Gentiles, right? It has to do with ethnic, right? Ethnic people, right? The, it, and if it's used technically, it's the Gentiles. But in Matthew 28, when he says to go and disciple all nations, he doesn't mean technically the Gentiles. He means all nations, right? So we just have to pay attention to the context, right? And if we get... It's easy to get too caught up, especially if we get caught up into something like, oh, well, you know, this is a, this is a military term used to guard a garrison. You're like, yeah, but he's not talking about that. So if he is talking about that, great. Because especially with Paul, a lot of times Paul is talking about something militarily or something at an athletic realm, right? And so you can import that when he's saying it in, the, in that context. You can say it as an aside if you're just like, and a cool thought about this is sometimes it means... Uh, to be off course and on a boat, right? But we don't want to put words into God's mouth that God's not saying. That's what's, the, for me, the most important thing. That's why it's so heavy, right? We need to, we need to make sure that we're not, saying, we're, not, we're not misrepresenting God into saying something that he's not actually saying. Um, the next, and this is probably the most sensitive, um, because we've all either heard this or made this, mi- uh, I would say make this mistake, or I don't want to say it like that. We've either heard this or said this, um, and that's problems surrounding synonyms. Um, if, you know, for synonyms, there are two words that have the same meaning, right? And that actually comes from two different Greek words that talk about having the same meaning. Same, anyway, it doesn't matter. The same name. Anyway, whatever. Um, and sometimes, like, so every words that are synonyms, they have a semantic range, right? And they overlap a ton. And sometimes the New Testament authors will use synonyms to point out the parts where they're different. And sometimes they're just using two words that are similar to say similar things that are interchangeable, just like you would use normal synonyms. 
All right, and one of the biggest way, one of the biggest places where I've seen this mistake is in John 21. All right, in John 21, you guys remember this. This is Jesus and Peter having a conversation. And um, Jesus says, do you love me? Peter says, you know I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. And he says, do you love me? And he says, you know I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. Well, I'll, I'll, I know that, I mean, it's not technical, right? And then he says a third time. And it says that Jesus, uh, Peter was discouraged because he asked him a third time, do you love me? And he says, yes, you know I love you, whatever. He says, take care of my sheep, right? And there's so many times we've heard this taught, maybe we've taught it ourselves, where the, the distinction that, that Jesus is trying to make here is between these two words for love. There's two Greek words for love. There's actually four different Greek words for love. We see three of them in the New Testament. And one of them comes from agape. It's agapao. It's a verb. Um, and we say this is the never-ending covenant love of God, right? And then the other one is phileo. And we, this is where we get Philadelphia, right? Brotherly love. And this is a brotherly love. And we, we try to say, okay, there's two different levels of commitment here. There's the agape commitment and there's a phileo uh, a commitment. And Jesus says, uh, do you agape me? And Peter says, no. Yes, you know I do, but I phileo. And Jesus says, do you agape? And he says, I phileo. Do you phileo me? I phileo you. Right? And, and we want to make a big deal and say, see, that Jesus is having to lower the standard of Peter's commitment to him. Which, okay, now, if it were consistent in John, that John always used these words in these ways, then I could see us trying to make a point of that. But John doesn't use agape to mean the, be the best commitment and phileo to mean a little commitment. Like, for instance, in, uh, uh, in, John, in John 5, John 5, 20, talking about the Father's love for the Son, John, who wrote John 21, in John 5, he's talking about the Father's love for the Son. If we have in our minds that agape is a big love and phileo is a little love, then we, if he's talking about God's love for the Son, that should be agape, right? But what does he use? Phileo. Oh, so maybe John, who's writing this, doesn't have the same idea behind some of our sermons. Because then in John 16, 26, talking about the Father's love for you. Again, it's phileo. And historically, we need to realize that by the time of the 4th century, so in the translation of the Septuagint, agapao was just the common word for love. In fact, phileo had even added some to its semantic range to mean kiss. Isn't that interesting? So in Luke 22, when Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, it's phileo. Isn't that fascinating? Right, so what this should lead us to believe that in the New Testament time period, that agape and phileo were pretty much used as love interchangeably, right? That if you try, and so and so, then now we have to think, well, okay, what what's happening in this passage? Well, I think a lot of times we get too into the text, into the little tiny like minutia of the text, that we can't step back and be like, okay. It says that Peter was discouraged. Why? Well, Peter's discouraged because he asked him a third time. Okay, well, let's, what happened in the chapter before this? Oh, Peter denied Jesus three times. And the chapter before that, when Jesus told Peter he was going to deny him three times. So I think that in this context, what we should really be thinking of is not the, well, what word for love was used, right? And I'll say, that as kind of an, as a, as an aside, if you feel like a passage of scripture 
cannot be properly understood to understand the main point of a passage of Scripture without knowing Greek or Hebrew, then it's probably not the main point of the passage. Or ser- the main point of the passage. I think that's a really big deal. In fact, again, I said, man, I think you should study Greek and Hebrew. I think it's really important. In fact, I had a, but I had a Greek teacher in, uh, in seminary that said this. He said, this is one of the most helpful things ever. He said, a good understanding of New Testament Greek is like underwear. You guys get it? He said, <laughs> he, said, I'm, he said, we're all really glad you have it, but you don't need to show it to anybody. And it was, su- it was great, right? Because do, are we trying to get a better understanding of Scripture ourselves? Sure. But if we start saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, in the, uh, this is this actually, this is always used in a post-positive way. And so anytime you have the participle used as substantively, it's always going to have an adverbial connotation, right? If you say something like that, it's going to be ridiculous, right? Uh, people just think you look smarter, but it hasn't actually helped them understand what God was trying to say to them. Right? So in this, we, need to, we can step back and say, look, he's discouraged. Why? Because he asked him three times. And so he's getting this like threefold affirmation because of his threefold denial. Right? And it's, I mean, w- would, we, would we really be okay with Jesus saying, and now I've just lowered the standard of what love means because you, Peter, obviously don't love me like you should. I mean, Peter, let's be honest, went on to get crucified upside down because he couldn't, he wouldn't be honored enough to be crucified right side up like Jesus. Is, does he have like a lower commitment? I mean, you know what I'm saying? And especially what's really fascinating is that in this passage, our, our inconsistency is that there are actually three different sets of synonyms in this passage. If we're going to be, if we're going to make a big deal about the minutia, because in this passage, we have the two words for love, but we also have two words for shepherd, one's feed and one's shepherd, and two words for sheep. One for sheep and one for lambs. And so when Jesus is actually responding, the first time he says, feed my lambs. The second one says, shepherd my sheep. And the third one says, feed my sheep. No, no one's making a huge, no one's preaching a sermon on the difference between lambs and sheep, right? Or between shepherding and feeding, right? Because we know that in those situations, Jesus is actually using synonyms because they're synonyms, right? Um, All right, so then moving on, there's grammatical errors that we make. I'm not going to go super into this because it'd be unnecessary, um, but uh, with tense and mood, especially when we're looking at the New Testament, tense and mood, we understand that these are patterns, that they're not set in stone, that they're patterns, that if people talk about, if something's in the present tense, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a continuous action. It doesn't have to mean that. And if something is in the aorist tense, it doesn't mean that it's a one-time, uh, a one-time action with no, uh, with no residual results, which is what, people, what a lot of people try to say. In fact, the word aorist means undefined. So it's just, it, a lot of times, it's just, it's just an action that happened that the author is not trying to make a big deal about when it happened. In fact, what a lot of people are doing now is people are, for maybe for the past, like, uh, 10 years, they've been talking about in Greek that the tense doesn't necessarily have to do with when it happened, but some sort of verbal aspect. Do I know what that means? No, I have no clue. But, which makes me think, let's not focus on that, right? And so what's the most important is the context. What is the context saying, Right? Next are some errors in logic. Um, here's, a, uh, here's a poem that's super helpful. If you've ever wondered why fire engines are red, um, they have four wheels and eight men. Four plus eight is 12. 12 inches makes a ruler. Ruler's Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth sails the seven seas. The seven seas have fish. The fish have fins. The fins hate the Russians. The Russians are red. Fire engines are always Russian, so they're red. <laughs> Boom. Got it. In case you were wondering. Now, we see this and we think, well, that's nonsense. But there have been times where you'll sit in a sermon and 
you'll think, and the whoever is preaching will say, and in fact, I went to a men's conference once, and uh, where the preacher started off in Acts chapter 2, talking about Pentecost, and he saw the tongues of fire, which then took him to Proverbs to talk about the power of the tongue, and then power, that's right, dynamite. The dynamite power of the Holy Spirit. Boom, mic drop. And you're like, wait a second, I'm, I'm dizzy, right? And we need to make sure that we're not just using like these steps, like, well, it says here this, so which means here this, which means here this, which means here this, and jumping from context to context, and then you'll just get dizzy, and you're not really explaining what God is trying to say to his people, right? Some other errors in logic, we have worldview confusion. We're going to go through these real quick. That's when you try to import your worldview into the text, right? When in reality, we need to find out what was happening in the context, and then take that principle and apply it to where we are now. Um, the next is the confusion of truth and accuracy. And some people will get really upset because they'll say, oh, Scripture contradicts itself. Here it said one blind man. There it said uh, two blind men. Here it said um, 30,000. Here it said 33,412, right? It, see, the Bible contradicts itself. Well, we need to understand the difference between truth and accuracy. So if I say that my home is uh, not far from camp, that's true. If I say that my home is three miles from camp, that's true. If I say that my home is 3.2 miles from camp, that's also true. All these are true. They say different things because we need to understand the difference between truth and accuracy, all right? And so, that, which also means that we don't take one statement of Scripture and say that this is exactly what this means at every time. It could be, it could apply in different ways. So especially, we move on, same thing with unwarranted generalizations. Um, sometimes, uh, so this is when we use one particular example to have a generalization that is applied universally, Right? So, but we need to understand that like in Mark 10 with the rich young ruler, we don't treat every person that asks the question, what should I do to be saved? The way Jesus treated the rich young ruler, right? Sometimes the rich young ruler, sometimes when someone says, what do I need to do to be saved? We say, well, you confess, repent, and believe, you know? You know, it kind of looks like Jesus blew like an awesome gospel opportunity here, but I mean, he knows everyone's heart, Right? So he obviously didn't make a mistake. But we see Jesus doing the same thing. Jesus' first message, what? Repent. Right? So we just need to make sure we're not overgeneralizing. There we go. The next is uh, we need to realize that analogies are always going to break down. Okay? And so should we use analogies in our teaching? Sure, absolutely. But we need to realize that analogy is only good for what it's worth for, what it's worth, right? So every analogy is going to break down, so it's helpful to talk about where, where the analogy is helpful and then say, but here's where it breaks down. I think it's always helpful to say where it breaks down. Like, for instance, um, uh, Blue, if you guys know Blue, his name's Blue. We call him Blue. His name's actually Jeffrey, but it's obvious Jeffrey to Blue, common nickname. And... Uh, and uh, he, was watching, he, was, uh, he was watching a sermon where the guy was talking about, in Ephesians, talking about the Holy Spirit as a down payment guaranteeing our inheritance. And he used the analogy of the engagement ring. And I think, great analogy, right? Because what's, what are you making? You're making a promise. I'm making a promise that we're going to get married, okay? But we're human beings. And some people get wedding, uh, engagement rings back. Right? So that's where we need to show the discontinuity. Show the continuity and the discontinuity. That way it's helpful. That way we're not, that we don't have an analogy that makes someone, that someone can take and go further than it should. Right? 
The next, uh, really, real simple, is simplistic appeals to authority. Let's not just quote somebody because we like them or we like what they say. We should quote them um, if they're saying something in a certain way, but it's not based on who they are but what they're saying. So D.A. Carson said, uh, Dallas, we should be open to learning from all authorities in biblical and theological studies, but we should judge what they say not on the basis of who said it, but on the basis of the wise reasons they advance. All right? So that makes, it's, it's great. Because um, commentaries are awesome. I think you should, you know, you should, uh, once you've done a study on a passage of scripture, then I think it's great to supplement that with commentaries, especially because most of the people writing these commentaries are way smarter than we are. I've been studying this book of the Bible for like 20 years, so why not learn from what they have to say? Um, um, The next, we need to make sure that we're not making a minor point of the text the main point of our sermon or lesson, right? Let's make sure we're not making a minor point of the text, because our goal, right, is to be driven by the text. Because what we have are God's words to God's people. This is what should drive us. So the authors, divine and human, are saying something, and we need to proclaim that to God's people. The next is don't try to make the text fit your illustration. We need to avoid the whole that'll preach mentality, where, you know what I'm talking about? Like, you'll, something will happen, and you're like, man, man, this would be a really cool illustration. What could I preach that I could use this illustration for. Okay, that's backwards, right? We're not trying to teach and preach illustrations. We want to preach the text. If you have a good illustration, great. Um, next, don't come up with fanciful meanings for details in your text and build the meaning of your sermon based on your own imagination, right? And I mean that especially for if you're saying this is what God is trying to say. It's okay to speculate and be like, oh, but you know, so-and-so could have gone on to do this or that. Cool. But then if you're saying this could have happened. I'm not saying it did happen. Like even last, was it last night when brother was talking about uh, Jewish folklore? That's fine, right? Having engaging stories to help people uh, pay attention and to kind of break up uh, seriousness is wonderful, right? Uh, But then, you know, he was like, this is not true. This is folklore, (laughs) but wouldn't it be cool? Great. That's fine. But we're not talking about, that's not the main point of the passage, right? That's not, and we're not making that main point of the message. So, I, like I put here, uh, don't tell a story about the tree that turned out to be the cross of Calvary. That is so precious. Anyway, um, and then this, to me, this is uh, one of the most, this is what I need to hear the most. Um, don't teach right doctrine from the wrong text. Don't teach right doctrine from the wrong text. Don't let, don't just bank on the Holy Spirit keeping you in line, right? Um, and then I, uh, this is a quote from uh, a friend of mine. He said, your message will not only lack power, the people in your class or congregation will not be learning a method of biblical study. We must model for others how to understand and interpret the Bible. You know, when, after you teach or preach through a passage of scripture, then it should be obvious that you have followed the train of thought of the divine and human author. In fact, in theory, someone should be able to, if you say, oh, on this, this next Wednesday night, we're going to be teaching through this passage of Scripture, then someone should be able to go beforehand and figure out probably what your main points are going to be. Because if, you're, if it's coming from the text, then the text should be leading the sermon or message, right? And so, and that's what's really cool is that's what we do at our church. At our church, we just go through books of the Bible, and so we'll tell people, hey, next week, <clears throat> be reading over Acts chapter 2, because we're going to be teaching through Acts chapter 2, so you can come better prepared. And so what should happen is um, when we teach it, it should be unlocking Scripture to people, so that 
your students can go home and say, you know what, I can get the same thing out of the Bible. Because you don't want them to remember you or what you said. You want them to remember the Bible and what God said. It's a really big deal. And I know for me, this is why I had to, I was, I was behind the eight ball. Uh, because when I, growing up, I, I heard scripture handled um, inappropriately. Here's a, here's a text. Here's one verse. Here's, put the Bible aside. Let me preach. And it took me a long time to learn how to study the Bible and then to teach the Bible. But if we think about our teaching the Bible as informing people on how to study, then it'll help to keep us grounded in the text. Um, the next, <clears throat> I just got a list of these kind of what to do. You know, we need to read, we need to pray, to observe in the text, interpret, and then apply. All right? This is it's super simple. You know, we, we overcomplicate it by diving into the minutiae right? And, and we need to, and I think we start early and throughout the week, let God give you illustrations. You know what it's like if you've been just absorbed in a passage of scripture, then everything has to do with that. And sometimes you can probably get annoying talking to people because they're like, okay, so you've been studying James, right? I get it. You know, well, here, let me share what I've been learning. I know. And it's just like in James when he says, you know, like, okay, cool. Yeah. Enough of that. Me. I'm telling you what I'm studying. You know, um, and then I've got some words of wisdom from, a, from three different guys who are awesome. One comes from a book uh, called Preaching for God's Glory by Alistair Begg. He talks about how he approaches preaching a sermon. He says this, think yourself empty. So ask every question about the text you can ask, right? So you, you think, okay, I've figured it out. Then he says, read yourself full. So then you add commentaries and stuff. Then he says, write yourself clear. And he actually writes out every word he's going to say, including if you'll turn in your copy to God's word too, right? I mean... Yeah, he's, he's awesome. And then he said this, then he says, pray yourself hot, which I love. And then he said, uh, this is a quote, he says, there's no chance of fire in the pews if there is an iceberg in the pulpit. And without personal prayer and communion during, with God during the preparation stages, the pulpit will be cold. That's well, powerful. And he says it with a Scottish accent, which is ever, it's just even more powerful. Um, and then he says, be yourself, but don't preach yourself, which is great, you know, don't, you don't have to mimic another preacher or teacher to be like them. Be you, but don't make it about you. Um, and then here's a 10 quick points from uh, Kevin DeYoung. This is a lecture he gave at Gordon-Conwell. He said, beware of preaching all your battles from seminary, or if you haven't gone to seminary, just think of your soapboxes. Don't preach a soapbox. Don't be like, oh, every time someone gets up to teach, you're like, well, they're going to talk about this. You know, just don't do it. Um, be careful to, with offhanded comments. This is huge because people are paying attention to every word you say. Uh, be yourself. Again, same. That's helpful. Remember, there are different kinds of people listening. Uh, don't let personal conflict creep into your message. Okay. Tinder. Um, make sure your best stuff is from the text. I love that. Be a pastor for the whole church, not just part of it. And then number eight, <clears throat> this is really also helpful for me. He says, uh, don't give them the whole elephant. You know, especially if you're in a situation where you're going to be teaching the same group or the same uh, youth group or same congregation, you can save some stuff for next week. You'll see them next Sunday or next Wednesday. You don't have to get it all out right now. This is my problem. Uh, I want to get, I want to make sure every base is covered. Well, I didn't even talk about this verse. Let's, I get a, how much time do we have? You know, um, one of the best and worst advice I've ever been given was in 2007, somebody, after I was done teaching, they came up and said, you need to say less better. And then walked away. I know. I mean, he for real. And it was just, what a jerk. And it was great because there was another guy on staff that was like, 
dude, don't listen to that guy. That guy's a jerk. And I was like, yeah, he is. And then I started thinking about it, and I was like, he's right. I need to say less better. And it's funny because now it's been, what, 11 years, and we'll still talk about it because it's super helpful. If you could, if you could say the same thing that you've already said, but you can do it shorter, oh, yeah, it's, and, uh, don't let it creep in. Um, I'm fine. I'm not hurting at all. It's a good advice just from a jerk. Oh, I can't. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Um, I see. I see what you're saying. I'm taking it personally. I'm not. I mean, he should take it personally because he's the jerk. Anyway, <laughs> um, we're all making mistakes. We're just learning, you know. Anyway, so uh, he says, root for others, don't compare, and tell your congregation you love them. You're glad to be their pastor. Um, <clears throat> next, uh, words of wisdom from Tom Schreiner. Tom Schreiner. He's a pastor and he's a professor at school. I went with him and I sent him an email and said, hey, I'm going to talk to student pastors. Um, do you have anything you want to say? And like half an hour later, he emailed me back. He's just awesome. He's like the busiest person in the world, but it's just nice. And he sends me stuff all the time because he's really nice. Um, <clears throat> he says this, and this, keep in mind, this is a guy who's been uh, teaching New Testament Greek for about 25 years. He says, very rarely appeal to Hebrew or Greek in your sermon. Again, it's like underwear, right? It's just so helpful. I mean, this is a guy who's written commentaries, academic commentaries on the New Testament Greek, right? Then he says, don't be too complicated in explaining the text. That's great. You know, I've heard it said, I think it was Einstein, I don't know, that said, if you can't explain something to an elementary school student, then you don't really understand it yourself. You know, because it's easy to get caught up in like this. You're using big vocabulary and all the pieces fit in your brain. You're like, oh, I've said something, you know. And then someone says, but what does that mean? You're like, oh, didn't you hear me? I said the word sanctification, you know. I said propitiation. You didn't get it? Propitiation is the answer. No, that's the question. What does that mean, you know? (laughs) Um, And then he says, uh, don't forget to apply the text profoundly with the Holy Spirit's help. Explaining the text isn't enough. Again, this is really convicting to me because the easiest thing for me to do is like, oh, let's, I work through the text. I'm like, isn't that awesome? Let's pray. Okay. Yeah, so that is awesome. Now, what do we do? How is my life changed? How are my thoughts and actions supposed to change because of this, right? How am I supposed to see God differently or myself differently? That's Give me that, you know, so that's helpful. And he says, don't forget to pray and pray about the impact of your sermon. And don't forget that anything good that comes from your sermon is from God and not from you. That's good. That's really good. And then, uh, yeah, this is the last thing. Just uh, the only encouraging paragraph in D.A. Carson's little book. It's here. I figured I got to share it with you because otherwise (coughs) he's just mean. Um, Just a mean Canadian guy up there with a red pen. That's all he is. Uh, he's really smart, but he said this. He said, we will not go far astray if we approach the Bible with a humble mind and then resolve to focus on central truths. Gradually, we'll build up our exegetical skills by even-handed study and a reverent, prayerful determination to become like the workman who correctly handles the word of truth, right? So that's our goal. Our goal is we are handling God's word. We're saying, we're, we're saying, we're actually explaining the words that God is saying to his people, 
It's such a, such a heavy thing, such a big deal, and we need to take it reverently, right? And then I've got, um, I've got some recommended resources. These are just some books, some computer applications, and a couple websites that are real helpful. So uh, let me pray for us, and then we will be in the perfect time to be late for breakfast. All right. Gracious Lord, we exalt you and we praise you. We love you. Thank you for your word that you've given to us and the opportunity that we have to explain your word to your people. And I pray that you'll give us each wisdom on how to do so and that we'll focus on you and what you are saying to your people and explain that and apply that and that our lives will be changed because of it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.